If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 22. And as you find that, you can stand. <clears throat> and I'm going to read beginning in verse 22. Acts 22, 22. And they listened to him up to this statement, and then raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging, so that he might find out the reasons why they were shouting against him that way. And when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him, and the commander also was afraid that he, when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. I'll pray. God, I thank you again for um, just this great privilege of being able to assemble together in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and we thank you, God, for the calling um, upon our lives to walk with you Um, that you have um, granted us, God, by your mercies and grace through faith in Christ, new birth and a right relationship with you, oneness with you. And I thank you, God, that we can hear from you and be taught of you and for the ministry of your spirit through your word, God, to teach us and correct us, to admonish and reprove, Lord, all that we need and how you use your word to bring about those things. And we Pray that you would minister to us today, God, as we need. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been um, since last year that I last saw you. Um, Happy New Year to you. It's great to be together again. It does feel like a long time since we were last in Acts together. Um, And so I wanted to review just a little bit where we are um, here in chapter 22. I'm really going to be looking at all of chapter 22 this morning. I just read the last part of it. But Paul has just come back from his third missionary journey. And he came with a sizable amount of money to donate um, to the Christian Jews there living in Jerusalem. Um, Nothing's said about that once they arrive, and and the Jerusalem elders, um, the church leaders, felt that it was going to be very important for Paul to dismiss um, some false accusations against him, namely that um, he was against Judaism, and he was against um, the Mosaic customs, and even against the law of Moses. And and so they said, Paul, you need to put this aside, and we know that's not true, we know that you still um, are faithful. Um, in your faith to Christ, you are still faithful to, uh, to live as a Jew. You have not denied um, your, Judea, your Jewish faith, your Jewish heritage. And so we suggest that you um, pay the expenses of three different men who are taking vows and that you go into the temple with these men. And everybody will know that as you practice your Jewish um, faith, that you are still um, a good Jew. Well, it didn't work. 
Um, it didn't work at all. And as soon as Paul came into the temple, he was falsely accused of, of bringing into the temple a Gentile, which he had not done. It was absolutely false accusation. And a riot occurred, and they started beating Paul with the purpose of wanting to kill him. And um, the commander of the Roman army, and they had a, a, um, a barracks um, that, was, that was right next to the temple where they could look down into the temple courtyard and see what was going on. And when they saw the riot, the commander rushed in there with a bunch of soldiers, and they, and they rescued Paul. And, um, and so then it says, in, in picking it up in chapter 21, verse 37, that Paul was, was about to be brought into the barracks, and he said to the commander, may I speak something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? And so with that, the commander knew that Paul was not an Egyptian insurrectionist that he thought that he was. And so he said, well, yeah. So Paul says, so you're, he says, you're not the Egyptian assassin. Verse 39, but Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a, student, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. Now, he's going to not give a defense of his actions here. He, in fact, he won't even mention the accusation that he brought a Gentile into the temple. Apparently, Paul felt that it was not necessary to bring that up. We don't know, but he just never even mentions it. But he thought this would be a good opportunity to share his testimony. Now, we as Christians know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you know that the chances of, of another Christian wanting to hear your testimony is really pretty high, right? Christians are usually very favorable about hearing a Christian's testimony. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you also know the chances of an unbeliever wanting to hear your testimony are, li are just as likely not to happen, right? That Christians are not, unbelievers are not generally predisposed to want to hear the testimony of a Christian. They don't want to hear the name of Jesus often. They don't want to hear how, how God has lived in your life. We know there's exceptions. God's prepared the hearts of men, and there are exceptions, but generally speaking, unbelievers are not excited to hear about your testimony. Christians are. Unbelievers aren't. Paul's not naive. He has to know that in sharing his testimony with a bunch of people who were just then trying to kill him, it's not likely to be received well. But he goes down that path anyway. And so he stands on the steps and he, and he begins to speak in the Hebrew dialect or in Aramaic. Now, an interesting thing here, all the historians, experts are in agreement that um, when Paul chose to do that, to speak in his mother tongue, he would not have been speaking to, the, to most of the people. He would have been speaking to the, to the um, Jerusalem population because their first language would have been Hebrew or Aramaic, not Greek. And so some historians wonder if even the commander and the Roman soldiers would have understood anything that Paul was saying because they didn't necessarily speak Aramaic. Moreover, the Hellenist Jews who had brought the false accusation against Paul that he had brought a Gentile into the temple, 
those Hellenist Jews likely didn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. They likely only spoke Greek. That's why earlier in Acts, when the Hellenist widows are being overlooked with the distribution of food, likely because there was a language problem. And so Paul knew that he's not speaking to the Greek-speaking population, and there's going to be a lot of people listening to him that have no clue what he's saying. But he's focused on the most ardent supporters of Judaism, the Jerusalem Jews. And he wants them to hear his testimony. So I want to just work through then now and just and, and, and highlight some different things that we can take as lessons from Paul's testimony. First of all, he says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. So he speaks to them respectfully. It's a good way to start a testimony. Not you bunch of sinners, but brethren and fathers. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today. Now he's He's bringing the point, he's, he's identifying with them and saying, we have a lot in common here. I, um, whenever I um, preach or teach at His Hill, have other opportunities to preach and teach, I am prone, as you know, to work in illustrations and stories from my own life. And the reason for that is because I've learned over the years that being in ministry, people just kind of think you were born with a Bible in your hand or with a cross around your neck. And, and I have to, and so I've had, I can't tell you how many times people over the years have said to me, you worked construction? I, you know, you shoot a gun? You like to hunt? And, I, and, I'm, and so I found that it's profitable to share these things because they're points of identity. Well, we have common ground here. And so that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, we have a lot in common here. I'm a Jew, you're Jews. I was trained and educated in this city, and this is, this, this is my, I, I call this city home. He says, I trained under, I used to know how to pronounce his name, I'm having a hard time this morning, Gamaliel, and he said, and this, this guy came up earlier in Acts, he's the one, I think it was in chapter 5, where they've got most of the apostles standing before him, and this is the guy who said, listen, don't kill these guys. And, and it says, if, if, if these guys are from God and you oppose them, then you're opposing God. And if they're not from God, it's going to die out on its own. So just leave them alone. And so they scourged them and they sent them on their way. And so this is a highly respected man. And Paul says, he says, I have been zealous for God just as you are today. So he f- finds this point of common ground, a point where they can identify with each other. He's wanting to lower the hostility level. And, he's, and, and, and that's a good, wise thing to do. And, and people can relate to that. And that's what, he, what he's trying to do. I know people that, that um, have the gift of evangelism and they put this way up high on the, on the priority of what to do when sharing your faith with someone. You know, find common ground. Find an area where you can relate to each other and identify with each other. And it just helps to, to open the door into their hearts. And so then he says, and I persecuted this way. 
So not only was I like you, zealous, and, but I was like you, hostile. And so he's standing there bleeding. He's just been beaten by this crowd. And he goes, and I was a persecutor. I persecuted these same people to the point of death, not meaning that he killed them, but, no, but meaning that his actions resulted in the death of those that he persecuted, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priests and all the council of the elders can testify. From, from them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. And then he gets to his encounter with Christ. Now all of this to say, anybody listening to this from a, from a strong Jewish perspective would have said, this guy is a good Jew. Zealous for the law, trained under one of the top men in, in, as a, a top Pharisees there is, put his faith into practice by going out and, and hunting down these Christians and putting them in prison and persecuting them. And Paul would say in his own testimony, by the righteousness found in the law, Philippians chapter 3, that he was blameless. He was a good Jew. He was a Pharisee among the Pharisees. There's probably no harder person to see come to faith in Christ than a self-righteous religious person. And Paul's saying that's exactly what he was a very religious, self-righteous man. And he comes to faith. And the way that God brings him to faith was very dramatic. And sometimes the more self-righteous and the more proud a person is, then the more dramatic their conversion is going to need to be. So in verse 6, And it came about, as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me beheld the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Now, I just want to make a comment here before moving on to the rest of his testimony. This is now, uh, you know, the second time, at least, in Acts that this testimony has been given, and it's going to be given again. And one of the things that I like about it is that it's so consistent. And even though it is dramatic, it's not embellished. He's just giving the facts. And the facts aren't changing every time he shares his testimony. I've heard some very dramatic testimonies. And I'm cons I have one person in particular in mind that every time I've heard him share his testimony, it gets more dramatic. And that concerns me. And I, and I just go... That's, so it's almost as though the testimony is becoming, the, 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 the story is carrying a life of its own. And it's no longer just the facts. And it seems to be that the, that the desire is to create an effect from the story, rather than just letting the story, the facts, speak for themselves. And see, that's what all Paul's doing. He's not trying to, to create an effect. He's simply giving the facts. And that's all we all should be able to do, just with our testimony. Just give the facts. You don't have to dramatize it. You don't have to embellish it. 
And as Texans, we, you know, at least me, speaking for myself, embellishment is, you know, that's part of being a good storyteller. But Paul's going, I'm not embellishing anything here. Just the facts. And let the facts speak for themselves. So I appreciate that. And any time the testimony is given, it sounds the same. Now, he maybe, maybe will include information from time to time that he didn't include before, but, his, but he's not embellishing anything. And in this, we're going to see he's going to include something that, he had, that we didn't know before. I will also highlight, as I've had here before, in verse 8, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And when we saw this Paul's testimony given earlier in Acts, and saw the same statement being given, I made the point that Paul, in persecuting the bride of Christ, is persecuting Christ. And we need to understand that. And that the world's never going to understand this, but whatever the world is doing to Christians, it is doing to Jesus. And so we can take confidence that Jesus is more concerned about that than we are. And Jesus is more than able to take care of his bride. The bride doesn't need to defend herself. That Jesus can defend his bride, and he will. And so the persecution of the church is the persecution of Jesus Christ. And if there's any fear of God in this world, that should put the fear of God in them. You better not persecute Christians. You can prosecute them if they've committed a crime, but don't persecute them because you're persecuting Christ. And so then the other people with Paul, they heard the voice, they didn't understand it. Verse 10, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand, so he has been humbled, by those who are with me and came into Damascus. Now this is important because again we hear sometimes people that have these dramatic conversion stories Maybe they've seen a vision or they've had a dream or whatever, and, they, and, and I'm not discounting that. But what I'm listening for is what I'm hearing here from Paul. It humbled me. You see? It, and because and sometimes you get the story, it, it's the, the idea that it, you know, they wouldn't say it, that it's inflated them. That God appeared to me. God gave me a vision. God gave me a dream. Might have. I'm looking for humility because there's no conversion without humility. We come to the cross. We come as sinners in need of a Savior. And there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And Paul is led by the hand. He is humbled. And he's in this position. He says, God, what would you have me to do? He's no longer looking to Jerusalem to tell him what to do. He's looking to Jesus. A humbled man who's placing his faith in Christ and looking to obey him. In verse 12, And a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, and he's saying this again because these Jews in Jerusalem need to hear this, he came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. Now again, we don't know in this whole account when exactly did Paul get saved. Was it on the road to Damascus? 
Is it when the, it, we don't know because it doesn't clearly tell us. But just because Ananias is calling him brother doesn't mean that Ananias is seeing him as a Christian. Paul starts out this testimony by calling these hostile Jews who are not Christian brethren. So that word doesn't always mean brother or sister in Christ, especially when the Jews are using it among each other. It can just mean fellow Jew. So it doesn't mean that Paul is yet saved. Brother Saul, receive your sight, and at that very time I looked up at him, and he said that God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And this is all prophetic coming from the mouth of Ananias. And Paul's relating this so that these Jews can understand God's calling on his life. Verse 16, And now, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now we understand, Scripture is very clear on this. Peter spoke directly to this matter in one of his epistles and says, Baptism is a spiritual thing that takes place the moment that you place your faith in Christ. And the, wa the water baptism does not remove sin. Ananias would have known that, so don't be confused by that. Is water baptism important? Yes. Is it an important part of making your testimony, your faith in Christ known? Yes. Does it wash away your sins? Does it make you saved to get baptized with water? No. So, he's, so we don't need to be confused with this. And so then he says, calling on his name. I take the position that that's when Paul gets saved. That it's then where he's calling on Jesus' name to do what? To save him. To wash away his sins. That Paul is then saved. And it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. And this is the part we didn't know. So now Paul is, he's not embellishing his testimony, but he's adding a bit of information that we don't have anywhere in Scripture. Sometime after being in Damascus, he makes his way back to Jerusalem. He's on fire for the Lord. And he's in Jerusalem in the temple, verse 17, praying in the temple, and he fell into a trance. So this is all God's initiative. He's not seeking for this to happen. And he says, and I saw him. He saw Jesus saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. Verse 21, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, earlier, Luke recorded that it was the apostles and elders in Jerusalem that said to Paul, get out of Jerusalem. They want to kill you. But we know from this that it wasn't their counsel that got him out of Jerusalem. It was the direct revelation of Jesus that said, leave this city. They're not going to listen to you. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And at this, another riot takes place. Wow. When was the last time you shared your testimony It caused a riot? <laughs> again, I don't think Paul thought necessarily 
having just come out of a riot, that sharing his testimony with a bunch of people who were just trying to kill him is going to pacify them. He's not stupid. The probability of them reacting as they did was very high. Okay? Now, the first riot was started over a false accusation. He brought a Gentile into the temple. But he has to know, he's been around long enough, that lots of times unbelievers don't want to hear what Christ has said to you. They don't want to hear about your testimony. And so another riot breaks out. But he also had to figure, there's probably some exceptions out there. And just because, generally speaking, most unbelievers are not eager to hear a Christian's story about Jesus. There are some who are. And we don't, we're not told if any of these people came to faith in Christ. But it won't surprise me at all, when we're all in heaven together, if we meet some people who were part of that audience, and they came to faith in Christ. And Paul's hopeful. Apparently, he believes even in the most hostile crowd, there may be people's hearts that God is working on. And maybe not. Well, then why share your faith? Because maybe God wants to be able to have these people stand before him and say, you are without excuse. And that God maintains his righteousness and his holiness in judging people and never overjudging them, but judging them as they deserve. And there are going to be many people who would presume to say, I never had a chance. And God's going to remind them of times like this where they did have a chance and they dismissed it. So Jesus says, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now let me just go back now and, and just highlight again or repeat what I, what I was, am trying to stress here. We should show respect to those that we're trying to witness to. We should look for points of common ground where we can identify with them. When we share our testimonies let the facts speak for themselves. We don't have to embellish. We don't have to try to make an impact. The truth will make an impact if people's hearts are responsive to the truth. We see from Paul's testimony that religious upbringing and zeal does not count for salvation. It does not indicate that a person is saved. It does not merit salvation. It has no value in terms of salvation, or even proving if a person is saved. We cannot trust our religiosity to give us merit before God. Often God must get the attention, especially of the self-righteous, proud people, in dramatic ways. He has to hit them between the eyes with a two-by-four. Sometimes I think we need to pray that way. When we see a person is banking on his religious faith, he's banking on his goodness. We in this church, I won't mention by name, there's a man that, we all, that mo many of us in our church know by name, if not by, by in person, 
who is not a believer and, and, but considers himself a good man and has spent his entire life trying to be the best man that he can be, married to a deeply faithful woman, both of his, of his children believers, and after all these decades and decades, he has yet to give his faith to his, put his faith in Christ. I love the man, and I pray for him. And I drive by his house every day, and I pray for him every time I drive by his house. Yet to see him come to faith in Christ. And I have to think, after living with a believing wife and two believing children, and he has many other relatives that know Jesus and try to speak into his life, that it's going to take something very dramatic to humble him and to cause him to see that his self-righteousness is a facade and that there is no righteousness apart from Christ. Humility in response to God making himself known and faith in Christ are absolutely essential to salvation. We must humble ourselves and place our faith in Jesus. Once we come to faith in Christ, God gives the orders, not counsels of men, but God. And Paul now understands he is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Baptism is an important way to make our new identity known and to publicly confess our faith in Jesus. It does not wash away our sins, but it is an important thing to do. This church, we haven't stressed baptism a lot. In fact, about the only time we have baptisms is when people come to us and say, I've never been baptized. Does this church do baptisms? Absolutely. And so we'll schedule a baptism, and, and normally when we do, we'll have you know, half a dozen folks that will get baptized, and we usually go up to his hill to the swimming pool and to the river if there's enough water in it. And that, So we, we, we haven't made a big deal about it, but we love doing baptisms. With our student body at his hill, pretty much every year in the spring, we have baptisms, and it's wonderful. It's one of my favorite outdoor activities is a baptism. And there's, there's never been a time, never been a time that I can think of where somebody has been baptized and they haven't come up out of that water just beaming from ear to ear. And everybody else that's watching is clapping. You don't have to tell them to clap. They're just clapping. They're all happy. They come grinning out of, you know, up out of the water, and, you know, and, and, and everybody's clapping. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. It's an important thing to do. I believe that every Christian ought to be baptized as a way to publicly express your faith in Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, it doesn't save you. It adds nothing to what is accomplished the, most, the moment that you place your faith in Christ. At that moment, you are baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit. And water baptism is simply an outward picture of the spiritual reality that already took place when you placed your faith in Christ. But very important. Upon being saved, we enter into a personal relationship with Christ. And I don't, Paul's not saying that God speaks to all people, but I believe God speaks to his people. And that in that personal relationship with Jesus, even as Paul had Jesus speak to him, it's not always in a trance, seldom in a, you know, I've never had a been in a trance that I know of, um, 
Someone might argue and say otherwise. Um, and, I, and I've had lots of dreams. I don't know that Jesus has ever spoken to me in a dream. There have been a couple of times when I've wondered. Most of the time I know that was not Jesus. Patsy and I were talking this morning on the way, way to church about a dream she'd had. You know, about a bear in a house with two of her girlfriends and, you know, and trying to get away from the bear. The bear, the bear wasn't me. Uh, don't worry. And um, that's good. And, I, and I, had a, I had a dream, crazy dream. You know, I was teaching a, a, the Book of Romans, a seminary-level course, and somebody had stole my Bible right before the class was to start. And, you know, and I spent all this time looking for my Bible and came into class, my very first class for the semester, and, and there's only five minutes left because I'd spent the whole hour trying to find my Bible. And I was just all stressed out, you know, and what am I going to do without my Bible? <laughs> I don't think I was hearing from Jesus. You know, it's just, it's just, but can Jesus speak to us? And yes, but that's not the point. The point is Jesus speaks to his people, speaks to us through his word, speaks to us through his spirit in the inner man. We understand that. We enter into a personal relationship with Christ when we place our faith in him. We can see from this that, that God knows the hearts of men. He knows the heart, he knew the heart of Paul before he saved him, and he knows the hearts of those that Paul is preaching to. And then this response, it's not about Paul's testimony, but the response to his testimony, and why did they get so over-the-top angry? Why are they ready to kill him again? Part of it is because of um, just prejudice, just Fleshly prejudice. I am sending you to the Gentiles. But that's not the whole part of it. That's a big part. And I said last time I preached on Acts, you know, that, that it was about prejudice. And it is. That's a big part of it. It's not the whole thing. Because any good Jew knew that God loves the world and not just Israel. Any good Jew knew that God had raised up Israel to be a light to the nations and that the Messiah would rule all the nations. Any good Jew could look back in his history and see that God brought the whole world to Solomon when he was king, so that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God, as Solomon said would happen. That's not a new revelation. The Jews know God wants the earth to be filled with the glory of God. So not all Jews were prejudiced. Many of them were. But there's something bigger, I think, that riled them and got them ready to kill Paul again. And I wonder if it's when he says, quoting Jesus, verse 18, he said to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. I didn't mean to do this. I have to tell the story on myself. I could point the finger at others, but might as well point it at myself. I didn't mean to do this, but I, um, the person in my life that wanted to have a confrontation with me about something, and I said, no, it's not going to happen. And he said, why not? And I said, because all you want to do is attack me, and you're not willing to listen. It's just not going to be profitable. That made him mad. It was the truth, <laughs> and I still stand by it. It was the truth. 
but it sure made him mad. And he later told me, he says, how do you know how I was going to respond? Well, how you're responding now is a pretty good indication of how I knew you were going to respond. And I, and, but nobody likes to be told how they're going to respond before they've responded, right? And Jesus is saying to Paul, and Paul is now saying to this audience, they're never going to listen to you. Nobody likes to hear that. It's true, but you still don't want to hear it. It's a statement of judgment. And see, they're feeling judged. Yeah, they deserve to be judged. It's a true statement. But Paul, in saying it, that, I think, is what's getting the people up. Because their Messiah, Jesus, because, see, they're, they're not objecting to the, to the truth that Jesus could be the Messiah. When, they're fine when Paul goes through all that. I mean, Paul has laid out the case here that Jesus is God and has spoken to him and revealed himself from heaven. No, no objection. They listen. It's not until Paul says, Jesus said, you're never going to listen. And now they're hearing the Messiah who's come to us is rejecting us. That's what it feels like. And that, I think, is what's really gotten them stirred up. Our Messiah has rejected us in favor of the Gentiles. Where do you get that in Scripture, they might say. And they're ready to kill Paul, to tear him apart. He spoke the truth, maybe would have known in advance what it's going to do when you tell people how they're going to respond before they've even responded. They don't like to hear it, but it's the truth. And it's hearing that, that Jesus is pronouncing his judgment on the Jewish people that's got them riled up. Now we, as good Bible students, should know that that judgment is not final. We have three chapters in Romans, 9, 10, and 11, that are devoted to Israel. Chapter 9 is Israel in the past. Chapter 10, Israel in the present. And chapter 11, Israel in the future. And it is very clear in chapter 11, there is a future for Israel. And Paul will say that if Israel's stumbling has resulted in salvation for the Gentiles, how much more will their restoration be? When Israel turns back to the Lord, how much more blessing will come to this world? That's amazing. And I've often thought about that, and I do teach Romans. That was not a false part of my dream. And, and as I've looked at that, I think, man, salvation has come to the Gentiles because the Jews rejected Christ. What greater blessing could we have? Well, the greater blessing than that is have Jesus come to this earth to be saved and have Jesus here reigning. Wow, won't that be great? I won't care whether it's Biden or Trump then, right? <laughs> I mean, Jesus is here. Hallelujah, right? And when's that going to happen? When the Jewish people turn back to him and recognize him as their king. And it's not going to happen before. The rapture, that can take place anytime. But for Jesus to rule on this earth, it is not going to happen 
until Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until Israel says, Jesus is our king. That will be the greater blessing. To be saved and have Jesus ruling over this earth. So there is a future for Israel. But at this time, God has extended the time of the Gentiles. So the time of the Gentiles began back in the days of Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar when Israel was taken captive. And Israel hoped that when Jesus came, when the Messiah came, that the time of the Gentiles would be over and now be the time of Israel. It's not the time of Israel yet. It's still the time of the Gentiles. And it will continue to be the time of the Gentiles until Israel says, Jesus is our king. And at that point, it will be a new day for Israel and for the whole world. So they're mad because judgment has been pronounced by their Jewish Messiah and hoped for one upon the nation of Israel. Wow, I thought we'd get further. We'll have to wait till next Sunday. But I hope these lessons have been helpful in looking at a testimony and God's working through this man and understanding even though the response is anger, hatred, murderous anger, God is sovereign. And as we're going to see as we go through these next chapters, God's going to use every bit of this. The false accusation that started the first riot, the commander coming out and rescuing Paul, another riot that gets started, Paul's going to, God's going to use all of this to get Paul to Rome and be in a position to bear testimony for Christ in the very palace of Caesar. Amazing what the Lord's going to do. I'll close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for your mercies upon us. Thank you, God, for your great grace, how you've blessed us and showered us, God, that we have the forgiveness of sins, which we've celebrated this morning through communion. We thank you that we have more than our sins forgiven, God. We have life, the very life of Jesus that has been imparted to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for this right standing and a relationship with you where you speak to us and we hear you. Thank you, God, that we can trust you and put, into, put our lives into your hands and that whatever this world throws at us, God, to know that you are in sovereign control and that you will defend your bride, and that you will bring us home to yourself. And we thank you, God, that our faith in you is not misplaced, and that every day is an opportunity to see you be the God that you are, and to prove yourself sufficient, adequate God for this life that you've allowed us to have. In Jesus' name, amen.